You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Hello and welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. Hey Anderson, I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This is the CNN Global Town Hall. Coronavirus facts and fears seen around the world on CNN International, CNN Espanol, and also streamed on CNN.com. Tonight, a key member of the White House Task Force on Coronavirus, Dr. Anthony Fauci, will be joining us to answer your questions, as well as the latest on treatments and the push by dozens of states to begin reopening their economies. Also, Bill Gates, he's gonna be here to discuss what the United States and the world at large is gonna need to do to accomplish what it comes to testing and the deployment of a possible vaccine. This is our ninth global town hall. No one town hall is more significant than the other. Tonight is unique though. The federal guidelines that recommend social distancing and brought a virtual end to public life for most expire tonight. What that means for our physical and mental health and whether now is the appropriate moment to let them end, at least from the federal perspective, that's gonna be a major theme during tonight's program. Of course, now it's up to governors to decide in their own states Mm -hmm. uh, how much to loosen them uh, or if to loosen them. Yeah, and at the bottom of your screen, you're gonna see our social media scroll. We wanna hear from you. So tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Also, a lot of you have sent in video questions all around the place. We're gonna get to as many of those as we can. Yeah, we're also gonna have reports, of course, from across the country and around the world on how those at home and abroad are still fighting this virus. But first, where we are as a nation in our fight against the virus and the problems that we still have to confront. The U.S. has now had more than a million positive cases of the coronavirus. More than 62,000 people have died. New modeling shows this pandemic will continue. The new projected death toll in the U.S. is estimated to be 72,000 people. That's up from 67,000 projected only one week ago. At least 31 states will be partially reopened by the end of the week. Public health officials warn the governors in those states to be careful. You can't just leap over things and get into a situation where you're really tempting a rebound. Food supply is also a concern, as thousands of meat plant workers around the country have been infected with the virus. To protect the plants and the food supply chain, the president signed an executive order forcing plants to stay open. The workers wonder how they will stay safe. There are encouraging steps in the fight against this virus. Companies in the U.S. and the U.K. say they may have a vaccine ready for partial emergency use in the fall. And White House Coronavirus Task Force member Dr. Anthony Fauci says a vaccine for the general public may be available in January. We want to go quickly, but we want to make sure it's safe and it's effective. I think that is doable. In the meantime, researchers believe the antiviral drug remdesivir could be an effective treatment for coronavirus patients. In New York, which remains the epicenter in the U.S., the USNS Comfort has discharged its last patient and has left New York City's harbor. The field hospital at the Javits Center is also winding down. But with more than 1,000 deaths reported a day nationwide, this virus is by no means contained. Every day, I think maybe today is the day the nightmare will be over, but it's not. 
Sanjay, I want to start off just by asking you, the, I think it's the question we've asked pretty much the start of all of these town yeah. halls. What do we know, you know, this week that we didn't know last week? What is still a mystery that we need to know? And also, what about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo yeah. saying there, I mean, how will we know when this nightmare is in? Well, that, that is the question I think everyone wants to know. Everyone's asking. And I think we're still a ways away from knowing the answer to that. We know that we've seen signs of improvement around the country, Anderson. We've seen numbers start to plateau in several places. We haven't seen this 14-day downward trend, though, that we need to see in order for people to feel more confident in reopening the country. We know that if we want to be confident in doing that, it's going to come down to test, trace, and treat, just like we've talked about. We know our testing is not necessarily where it needs to be. We know that it's going to take hundreds of thousands of people to adequately trace. We don't have that many, but there have been signs of optimism, Anderson, as you mentioned, with regard to treatment. Uh, this antiviral drug remdesivir, I first heard about this back in 2014. You may remember it was trialed unsuccessfully at that time for Ebola, but it's now giving us some, some hope, showing that it can have impact on this novel coronavirus by shortening recovery time. It's not a knockout, it's not a home run, whatever sports metaphor you wanna insert. It's not a cure, but it's a start and it's an important one. The thing, Anderson, I think I've really been struck by this week is that after speaking to so many people, both inside and outside the medical profession, there seems to be this, this cognitive dissonance. Some people are really talking about this as if it's close to being over or already over, but others are saying we're still very much in the beginning and we absolutely cannot get complacent. So we don't know when it's gonna end for sure, but we know we're not there yet, Anderson. Yeah, as we reported just a moment ago, at least 31 states are gonna be partially reopened by the end of this week. Here they are. Politically speaking, they're a mix, and from most parts of the country, for many states, that means retail and restaurants can partially reopen, as can hair and nail salons. Elective surgeries will now be allowed in places. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott's order to begin reopening supersedes any local orders. Joining us now to talk about this from the epicenter of the pandemic is Erica Hill here in New York. So the federal guidelines expiring tonight, it's, as I said, it's really been governors and mayors who've set specific standards, and moving forward, that's going to continue to be the case. What are you learning about what will actually change? You know, it really depends, as you pointed out, Anderson, it depends on where you are. Uh, so, and it also depends on the state. As you said, in Texas, the governor said his order supersedes everything. In Florida, the governor announced uh, phase one will begin on Monday. That will allow for some retail and restaurants to open with restrictions, 25% capacity being one of them, adequate spacing as well. You still can't visit nursing homes, schools remain closed. But what's interesting about Florida is that three of the hardest hit counties, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, are excluded from the governor's plan there. So they are not part of that phase one reopening. Other areas of the state, though, we know are opening beaches. Destin, for example, on the Gulf Coast, they are ready to welcome tourists back. The mayor there saying he's concerned about the economy and they need to get their beaches open. Uh, but it really depends on the state. California still under a stay-at-home order, uh, although a plan to phase a reopening was announced this week. They are likely weeks away, the governor said, from low-risk businesses opening. But today he also closed the beaches in Orange County because he said there were too many people out there last weekend. You know, Eric, I was just talking about the sort of cognitive dissonance, people talking about reopening. And at the same time, we're seeing big numbers of infections in some places. So take New Jersey, for example. What's happening there? 
New Jersey has the second highest number of cases in the country, just behind New York, up over 118,000 today. And the governor, who Phil Murphy, who met with the president today, said the state has been, in his words, crushed by this virus. As we know, he did say they're starting to see a little, a little bit of improvement uh, when it comes to how those cases are coming in. But listen, there are still a high number of deaths in that state. Uh, there's so much more testing that needs to happen. That said, he did also talk about a phased reopening and some things that they will see open in certain areas this weekend are parks and golf courses. Obviously, there are also concerns, continued concerns about the food supply chain. Uh, today, the president issued an executive order requiring uh, meatpacking plants to, to remain open. How tough is that going to be for companies? First of all, a lot of companies have sick workers and you know, the working conditions in a lot of these plants, it's shoulder to shoulder, it's very hard work, and it's, you know, it's tough for, for to maintain social distancing. You're right, the main concerns uh, that CNN is hearing from workers in these processing plants across the country is that it's very difficult to social distance. They're right next to each other. They spend long hours a day in close proximity to their colleagues. And they're also concerned about having adequate PPE to protect themselves and that the plants will be deep cleaned. Uh, the mayor, uh, one mayor in South Dakota said he was worried the plant in his town, the Smithfield plant, is, is so old he's not sure how they'll keep up. So that's certainly something uh, that's going to be a focus heading forward. Yeah. Eric Hill, Erica, thanks very much. Joining me now with more on the treatments and vaccines is CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. So, Elizabeth, just in terms of vaccine, with so many different companies working toward the same goal, what's a realistic timeline? Because now all of a sudden, some of the timelines they're talking about are, seem really, really quick. And how many of these vaccines would actually work? You know, this, these are all excellent questions, and we're still trying to figure some of this out. But let me tell you, Anderson, what we do know. So there are actually dozens of companies that have told the World Health Organization that they're working on vaccines. Only seven of them that we know of are actually in human clinical trials. And that started a while ago. If we take a look at the list, um, for example, the NIH trial, the National Institutes of Health one, that started on March 6th. And then you can see followed by CanSino, which is a Chinese company, and then followed by several other companies. The most recent ones that started were Pfizer and University of Oxford in England on April 23rd. Now, we've been talking a year, a year and a half, a year, year and a half, somewhere in that time frame. And today, Dr. Tony Fauci was asked, what do you think? Could we have a vaccine by the end of the year? And he said, look, I started saying a year, a year and a half back in January. So yes, the end of this year would be 12 months from when I first started saying it. So he thinks that it is possible that this could work by the end of the year. But Anderson, there are so many ifs here. The, the clinical trials have to go very quickly. The FDA has to move quickly. There's a lot of things that need to happen to get a vaccine on the market in the U.S. by the end of this calendar year. Mm. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. He does seem to have struck a more optimistic tone uh, this past week, Dr. Fauci. We'll talk to him about that in a minute. Um, Elizabeth, I know you also, you know, we've been talking a lot about remdesivir because it did show some impact this week in, the, in these trials. You, you've been doing a lot of reporting about hydroxychloroquine as well. I just wonder, is there any update on that? Have there, has there ever been any data that you've looked at that's been released on that? Um, on remdesivir, actually, yes, absolutely. This week there was a, a data that was released by Dr. Fauci. This is preliminary data. We have not seen it published in a medical journal, and that's an important point to make. But what he said was, look, we studied this data in order to see how long it was taking people to recover. So let's take a, a step back and think about what remdesivir is. If you haven't heard much about it until recently, there's a reason for it. It was developed for Ebola years ago, and it didn't actually work very well for Ebola, and it's never been on the market for anything. 
thing. So it's not currently in hospital pharmacies. This is a drug that people get intravenously. And when they gave it to very sick patients hospitalized with COVID-19, what they found was that it cut down in the amount of time that it took for recovery. When they took a placebo, it was 15 mm -hmm. days. And when they got remdesivir, it was 11 days. And, you know, four days doesn't sound like much. Four days fewer in the hospital is, is certainly a good thing. Also, what Dr. Fauci kept pointing out is that it's a proof of concept. If remdesivir is doing something, we can look at the way it works. We can look at the enzyme that it acts on and try to make other drugs that could hopefully work in the same way. Elizabeth Cohn, thanks so much. Now to London, where British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, newly recovered from the coronavirus, told his people today that they are past the peak of the disease. Joining us now uh, from London is seen as Christian Amanpour. Uh, so Christian uh, Johnson defended the government's response, which uh, it's been under a lot of criticism, certainly laid out a plan to try to reopen the country. What, what, explain what he said. Well, he basically said we're past the peak. And then the chief medical officer said we're nowhere near the end of this pandemic. Uh, we have had a situation here where there have been numbers of deaths reported, then all of a sudden jacked up this week, because guess what? They forgot to add the incredible numbers of deaths in care homes. So now mm -hmm. the numbers of deaths here are amongst the highest in Europe, um, much more than 26,000. And it's, it's very, very difficult for people here to, to get a grip on this. Plus, you know, they've been promised 100,000 tests per day. Um, this hasn't happened. They've been promised since the beginning of April that this would happen at the end of April. We're now at the end of April. It hasn't happened, although they claim that they're ramping it up. But this is, you know, really, really tough. And although Boris Johnson says, yeah, we're going to have a, you know, a plan to reopen, he also says, I refuse to risk a second wave and a second infection. So he hasn't given any clarity. And, you know, we're behind you in the, or rather ahead of you in the United States, and there's still no clear um, route towards opening up. So it's it's kind of interesting hearing that so many places in the U.S. are considering uh, opening up. And just one other thing in Europe on the vaccines. I spoke uh, to the uh, president of the European Commission today. On Monday, they're launching a massive global G20 effort to raise $8 billion to find and work on vaccines uh, and the rest. And the U.S. government has not agreed to take part. The Gates Foundation will and also Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance will, but not the U.S. government. Mm. So they're, they're missing U.S. leadership in this regard. Hey, Christian, I, I want to ask about uh, Sweden. Uh, I think it's fascinating. A lot of people yeah. may know what's happening over there. They're essentially not doing lockdowns. And, and now people, including President Trump, are, are using that as an example to defend lockdowns, for example, here in the United States. But what is the latest out of Sweden? So here's the thing with Sweden. It's really an outlier. And look, those who are frustrated at lockdowns, even here in, in the United Kingdom, were saying, hang on, look at Sweden. They seem to be doing OK. Well, it looks like they're in fact not. Um, their death rate is the highest amongst their neighbors in that part of, of, of Scandinavia, of that part of, of Europe there. They've got something like 2,500 deaths compared with 400 or so for, uh, for Denmark, 200 or so for North Norway, which did do very early lockdowns and a very, very early financial relief for workers to encourage them to lock down. So Sweden, in fact, is not out of the woods. And, and, and they say 50% of their deaths are amongst their elderly in the elderly care homes. And then they say, well, now we may have some kind of a herd immunity if there's a second wave. Wasn't our intention, they say, but maybe. Mm -hmm. So you could see 
I mean, you can see a little bit of mm. the uh, ethical dilemma. You can see a little bit of the practical differences and the results of, of different attitudes and approaches to all of this. Also, uh, South Korea, I understand there's some positive news from there. Yeah. Well, there is actually, and it's important because where it erupted in Asia is now where it's, it's, it's really under control, according to the governments there in China and in South Korea. So South Korea said today for the first time, no new domestic cases since it reported their first infection back in January. That's important. They've had about four cases, they say, but these were from travelers and they were not domestic cases. So what is it that created the success in South Korea? It hasn't changed since day one. It was testing isolating, tracing. And they keep saying, look, we started to build up tests even before we had a lot of cases. We really did. As soon as we understood what was happening in China, as soon as the WHO said test, 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 even before that, we were ramping up tests. So I think that for them has worked, plus the isolating and the tracing. Mm. Christian Amapur. Thanks very much, Christian. Thank appreciate you. it. Uh, Sandra, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci from the White House Coronavirus Task Force to answer your questions. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. We continue the CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus, Facts and Fears, with answers to your questions about the pandemic. At the bottom of your screen, there are social media scroll showing uh, some questions people are asking. Joining Sanjay and me is Dr. Anthony Fauci from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Fauci, great to see you again. We want to get to viewer questions in a moment. But first, when you look at these two diverging realities, where on one hand, cases are going up, deaths are rising, and on the other hand, we're on the eve of the federal social distancing guidelines expiring, and at least 31 states partially reopening in different ways, what is your message overall tonight to people who may be confused by yeah. these, you know, sort of different realities? You know, Anderson, the, the message is to take a look at the clearly articulated guidelines for opening America again. Um, and if you take a look at them, even though the so-called 30-day mitigation period has ended, the first component of opening America again is what we call a gateway which means that you need to have to go down over a 14-day period incremental or decremental decreases in the number of cases that you have before you can even think about going to phase one. And then you stay a certain time in phase one, and then there's another checkpoint before you go to phase two, and another checkpoint before you go to phase three. So there really is, if you follow the guidelines, there's a continuity that's safe, that's prudent, and that's careful. So the concern that I have is that there are some states, some cities or what have you, who are looking at that and kind of leapfrogging mm. over the first checkpoint. And I mean, obviously you could get away with that, but you're making a really significant risk that if you do that and you don't have in place the absolute clear-cut capability of identifying, isolating, and doing the contact tracing, when people do start blipping, because there's no doubt in my mind that when you pull back mitigation, you're gonna start seeing cases crop up here and there. And if you're not able to handle them, you're gonna see another peak, a spike. And then you almost have to turn the clock back to go back to mitigation. So that's the reason why I keep trying to articulate to the public and to the leaders, take a look at the guidelines. They don't tell you because you've reached the end of the 30-day mitigation period that all of a sudden you switch a light on and you just go for it. 
That's not the way to do it. Each state, each city, each region is going to be a little different. And there may be some situations where people can go into that pretty quickly because they've already passed the first gateway. But others should not do it if they're still on the way up and they haven't plateaued. So that's really my concern. And, and it doesn't appear, at least from when we look at the data, that anyone sort of meets, any state meets these criteria fully at this point. So, I mean, it sounds like none of these states should be reopening, but is this gonna be sort of incremental um, infections, do you think, or, or do places like where I live here in Georgia, do you think you could potentially see exponential growth? Again, a few cases and then suddenly really taking off again. Well, <clears throat> You don't know for sure, but I don't think that you will see something as explosive as we saw in New York because of the special characteristics of that city, which made them vulnerable, or even in New Orleans, which had a very sharp peak and then came down very nicely. What I think you'll see is these spikes, like in certain areas, nursing homes, plants where workers congregate, mm. prisons and places like that. So when you look at the chart, that's where you'll see it. The thing you'll really get into trouble if it spills over into the general community the way it did in New York City. Because if you can't stop that from happening, then I think you're really going to see the sharp peak that is going to be very disturbing when that happens because it's really going to take a while to get it back down. But I must say that, you know, the, 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 um, the discretion is given to the governors. They know their states. The mayors know their cities, so you want to give them a little wiggle room. But my recommendation is, you know, don't wiggle too much. Try as best as you can to abide by the guidelines that were very well thought out and very well delineated. Some of them are doing that, but others are taking a bit of a chance. I hope they can actually handle any rebound that they see. Can you talk about the, the development, like sort of the race to develop a, uh, a coronavirus vaccine? I mean, it seems like it's there's a lot of people all around the world, a lot of different companies, uh, governments working on this. Are, are they work, do they work together? Is this kind of a, a, a battle, a rush to try to be the first one to get it out there? No, you know, uh, I, I don't think, Anderson, that it's, that it's a rush to get it out there to beat somebody else. I mean, everybody wants to get a vaccine for their country, for the safety of their country, and if possible, make it available to the world. I mean, I can only speak for what we're doing. We have a core group of a number of candidates that we at the NIH and the FDA and, and, and other uh, agencies within the government, the DOD, including the Department of Defense, are working together now to try and get a situation where we can get something that's done, that's safe, that's effective, that's quick, and that you could scale up. Because each of those are really important. I mean, to just say, I have a vaccine, throw it into people. What people don't appreciate, because they're so attent to getting a vaccine quickly, is that there could be deleterious negative effects of enhancement of infection. So you gotta make sure you don't get slowed down by that, but you're aware there are safety issues. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna go, we're in phase one now, which means we're looking predominantly at immediate safety and some immunogenicity, namely, does it induce the kind of response you want it to. We're gonna go quickly as we get into the summer into a phase two, three. We're gonna go right into it, looking at safety and looking at immunogenicity. Now, if there are cases that are around, either here in the United States, which likely there will be some, or some of our international sites, 
because we have clinical sites that we put together years and years ago for HIV and for influenza and for other things. If we get in there and there are a number of infections, you can get an efficacy signal right away, which means you may know right ahead of time whether or not you have something that works. But importantly, what's being done now that's different than what most situations are is that before we even know a vaccine works, we're gonna have to make the investment in hundreds of millions of dollars to start developing a vaccine so that when you ultimately prove it works, you don't have to wait five or six months to scale up to get enough doses Mm. to give to a meaningful number of people. That's a risky financial circumstance, but it certainly, certainly is worth the risk given what's at stake. Dr. Fauci, you seem to have struck a a bit of a more optimistic tone about vaccines. I I know that you said a year and a year from this past January would be next January, but still I I felt like you were were trying to give some good news at that point. You actually thought it would take even longer. Now, do you really think that January is realistic? I mean, with everything that we know right now? Well, Anderson, um, uh, I think, Sanjay, I'm sorry, everything falls into place right, it will happen. But there are a number of situations there that could go wrong. Like it may all of a sudden have a safety signal. Mm. Oops, we have a problem. It may be that actually it doesn't work. It doesn't protect people. I mean, uh, you know, we've been involved, I've been involved in vaccine work for decades. Not every vaccine that we went after worked. So that's an assumption that it's gonna be safe that it's gonna be effective, and that we're gonna be able to do it quickly. I think each of those are not only feasible, but maybe likely. That's what I mean when I say by January, we'll do it. But I can't guarantee it. So what might happen is that people months from now will say, well, you said we were gonna have a vaccine in January. I didn't say that. I said, we're gonna shoot to be able to have one if we're successful at each and every one of these places. And believe me, there's nobody in the world no matter what they say, from what country, that's gonna guarantee you that they're gonna have a safe and effective vaccine at any given time frame. They may be cautiously optimistic about it, but nobody's gonna guarantee that if they're Mm. being honest with you. Um, I've got some viewer questions, let's get to them. Len in Florida sent in this video. How is contact tracing realistically possible? As an example, assume an employee of a grocery store tests positive, which means they may have had the virus for up to 14 days with no symptoms. During that time, they would have been in contact with hundreds if not thousands of people while at work. And that's just at work. Can you explain the procedure to contact trace that person? It seems like an impossible task. No, it's a good question, a great question, but it's not an impossible task because if you look at many of what the CDC has in their great information store on their website, there are different levels of risk. So if I walk into a store and someone is is the clerk there and that person has got an asymptomatic infection and I go in and I'm there, I hand them a box of potato chips and I give them a couple of dollars, I get the change back, and I'm with them for two or three minutes, that's a really low risk. If you're there in the store with them, within a few feet of them for a considerable period of time, you're a medium risk. If you're a high risk, you're buddy-buddy, you're with them all day. So you don't have to do every single person that comes in there and test every single person. It depends on the level of the risk. 
if you have enough tests, if the perfect world, then you would be testing more people. But when you're in a situation where you want to be realistic, you don't have to test every single person. Got, we got another uh, question here, Dr. Fauci. This one was submitted on CNN.com, and it reads that uh, COVID can cause severe strokes in young and middle-aged people. Um, and the question is, for the duration of the outbreak, should people take a low-dose aspirin to potentially offset the risk of stroke? And then after the outbreak, and stop taking the aspirin to stop the risk of side effects. What do you think of that? A short-term, uh, you know, sort of prophylaxis. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a reasonable approach to that. And then there's a caveat. So getting back to what you just said, that we are seeing a disturbing appearance of strokes, even in relatively young people. So we know that aspirin, even a single baby aspirin a day, does inhibit platelet aggregation, which means it can prevent what I call microthrombi, or small little clots in the blood vessel. So reasonably speaking, if you're gonna take something taking an aspirin if, in fact, you have early um, uh, involvement with the possibility that you're infected. I don't wanna be on the record for saying I would recommend that, but that's not an unreasonable thing for somebody to do. But when you do that, you gotta realize that there are potentially toxic consequences. Mm -hmm. Aspirin can cause bleeding, particularly if you're somebody who's older, in which now we know when you take prophylactic aspirin, the level of bleeding is a risk, particularly in older people. So depending upon what you want to do with yourself, you measure and balance the risk benefit. But the idea of doing that is not a crazy idea. Dr. Fauci, as always, we appreciate not only your time, but uh, more importantly, your, all your efforts. Thank you. Uh, great to be with you guys. Thanks. Always Thanks. good to be with you. Take care. More of our global town hall and your questions coming up. Also, the estimates of deaths caused by the virus are going up. I'll We'll talk to the director of the Research Institute in charge of the projections for the reasons. And later, Bill Gates joins us for an extended discussion, a very in-depth discussion about his thoughts and concerns as the country begins to reopen. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back to our CNN Global Town Hall. The latest coronavirus modeling is showing an increase in the estimated deaths nationwide to just over 72,000 by early August. Those numbers, which of course are only projections, are from the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. They've been cited by the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Chris Murray is the director of the Institute and joins us now. Uh, Dr. Murray, thanks for being with us. Your newest model increases the predicted number of deaths by thousands. What specifically has made the number tick up? Well, the number has gone up because we've seen these uh, protracted peaks in some places. Uh, you know, it took a while for New York, for example, to come off the peak of deaths. Now, now fortunately, it's on, on, on its way down. But we've seen that phenomenon in a number of places. We've seen states adding presumptive deaths mm -hmm. to their death counts. And that not all states are doing that. So we're in this sort of funny zone where we've got the confirmed deaths and then some states adding in quite a large number of presumptive deaths where, where people couldn't get tested before they passed away. And so we're seeing quite a lot of fluctuation in the numbers that that's contributing. 
and and remember that our the the increased numbers there are still assuming uh, what's not going to happen, namely that people would have kept to social distancing through the end of May. We're working hard to factor in how that's going to bump up the numbers uh, as we expect to see some longer and resurgent epidemics in some states. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt as people lessen the social distancing, the the deaths will will go up. That's certainly what we're expecting to see. Uh, you know, we're trying to figure out because our model is driven in a large part by changes in mobility. Uh, so we've you know traced the changes of the social distancing mandates into changes in mobility and how that translates into fewer deaths, less less cases, less transmission. And now coming out of that, where we're seeing already some increases in mobility in some of the cell phone data, uh, the, the question is how. How quickly will people change their behavior and how quickly will they go back to having more contact? More contact means more transmission and sadly, eventually more death. So, so just to be clear, the, this increase in numbers then does not account for these, these reopenings uh, because we, we know that they're coming or some have already come, but you're saying the numbers have gone up despite that. So they're, they're definitely going to go up even more, you're predicting. The numbers are up despite that. We are really hard at work trying to translate these changes in the mandates into what that's going to mean. And the reason that's the harder than you might think is, you know, we know mobility is a driver of transmission. But at the same time, we're seeing states ramping up their testing. And mm. if the, the more you test, the more you find infectious individuals or even asymptomatic individuals and get them to isolate, the more you can tamp down transmission. So there are these two opposing effects. And, and the good news is, you know, the U.S. has doubled testing in, in the last week, uh, not, not equally in all states. Uh, but uh, we've got to try to figure out how the the, the balance of those two forces will play out. But certainly our numbers are going to go up once we take that all into account. When you look at the data, I mean, are the flatter, longer peaks, is that unique to the United States or has that happened around the world? You know, it, it's happening in different places in the world. For, you know, if you can go to two adjacent places in Italy, uh, you know, Liguria and Lombardia, and one of them had a pretty up and down sort of pattern. You know, the downswing was really quick like Madrid was in Spain. And then, you know, an adjacent region has this long protracted peak and a very slow decline. And nobody's really come up with a great explanation for who gets the long protracted peak and who's lucky enough to have the quick decline must be related to at some level to, you know, behavior and social distancing. But we're having a hard time predicting in advance where that's going to happen. Many of the models I look at, uh, Dr. Murray, don't extend out a few days or a few weeks. Yours goes to August. Uh, I'm curious, how did you pick August and, and what, what are your expectations after that? You know, August just started when we started off this effort and we were talking to the hospitals that we were primarily trying to help plan for the surge. And we said, so what time frame do you want some planning numbers for? And the response we got back was four months. That's the way they were thinking about it. So we mm -hmm. said, OK, we'll try to we'll do forecast out to August. We haven't changed that farther going out because there's so much uncertainty about what will seasonality and temperature do to transmission? And then on the other hand, we're also being asked by a lot of groups to make forecasts of when there may be a resurgence in the fall. So we will we'll get there, we'll come up, we'll extend our forecast window into the fall, but we first priority for us is to really capture what's happening now in the country and the relaxation of social distancing 
and the warmer weather and how that all plays out as well as the rise in testing. You know, it's interesting because we've obviously been talking to you throughout this. And I mean, I remember when the modeling that your your projections to August were, I think, like 61,000. And I feel that was like several weeks ago. And correct me if I'm wrong, because this is just from memory. Um, And then there was better social distancing in southern states uh, in in some of your modeling. Mm Um, So when I saw that, you know, the death toll had actually basically, you know, was coming close to what you had projected for for end of August already. Is that just the longer that the long the peaks have been longer? Is that or is it that social distancing hasn't been followed as much as you had anticipated? You know, uh, our approach to forecasting, I think we've talked about it before, Anderson, is a really very data driven. It's like weather forecasting. So we're trying to forecast the path of a hurricane. And so our models adapt to what we're seeing in the data. They're, they're not sort of like a theoretical stand about what we think the, the epidemic will be. And so we've seen a number of swings happening. So we started off at about 80,000 deaths with a wide range, you know, 35 to about 150,000. And then we saw, as you mentioned, that mobility metrics suggested that the South was doing a better job than we originally thought that brought the numbers down. And then you had this very long, protracted, terrible epidemic in New York, where New York stayed at the peak with, you know, thousands of deaths a day at the peak that really uh, racked up the death toll. And we've seen protracted peaks much smaller. But even here in Washington state, we stayed at the peak longer than we expected to see, mostly for hospitalizations, a little bit for death. Put all those together, you're getting these these changes. And then the new thing that's happening on top of that is this presumptive deaths that were missed in nursing homes and elder care facilities. So people are back reporting. They're they're sort of rewriting the history by telling us about deaths that, that the states had missed in the past. And you know, our net forecast for the country is the balance of, of all this new information feeding in uh, on a daily basis. Uh, well, Dr. Murray, uh, we appreciate your uh, your expertise as always. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thank you, Anderson. Quick reminder at the bottom of your screen, you'll see our social media scroll shows uh, uh, some of the questions that you're sending us. You can tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall or leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Back now with Sanjay and also want to bring in a veteran of many of our town halls, Dr. Lena Wen, a visiting professor at the George Washington University of School of Public Health, also Baltimore's former health commissioner. So, Dr. Wen, with this latest coronavirus modeling showing an increase in the estimated deaths nationwide and, and as they're going to now incorporate the ending of social distancing, it's likely to go up. Does it concern you that so many states are are relaxing their orders? Yes, it does. I mean, I'm worried for three reasons. One is that the numbers are going up, as you were saying, Anderson, and also we don't know the true numbers because of Mm under-testing. Second is we have lack of capabilities. We just don't have the public health infrastructure to do the tracing and and quarantining that we need. And third, I'm not sure that the American people are ready for another wave of not only resurgence of deaths, but also for another wave of shutdowns if necessary. So I hope that all those who can will continue to shelter in place, stay at home, and those who have to go out should take additional precautions like wearing a mask, washing our hands, and trying to stay six feet apart because we can all do our part to continue to protect each other and our loved ones. All right, let's get some uh, some viewer questions. Sanjay, uh, Andrew in New Jersey sent in this question, which reads, why was a vaccine never finished during the original SARS or MERS outbreak? 
Uh, and then there's a follow-up about, uh, you know, that I'll, well, let's, let's answer that one first. Yeah, so it, they were started, these vaccines were started, and some of, the, uh, some of the techniques that they use for those vaccines are actually being built upon now. But uh, a couple things. Uh, one is that the, the other outbreaks, SARS and MERS, um, because of some of the strategies we've been talking about, uh, we were able to make those, those uh, epidemics, uh, pandemics sort of really sort of fizzle out. So a vaccine wasn't as necessary. And, you know, vaccines cost money. So as, as things started to die down with regard to those other infections, I think the, the vaccine plans that guys like Peter Hotez uh, were working on just, just sort of went away. And I mean, how similar are those diseases to COVID? Well, you know, there, so the coronavirus is the same thing that caused SARS and MERS, a, a type of coronavirus. So that part is similar. And some of the techniques to use sort of a, a genetic vaccine, some of that was started, some of that knowledge was sort of gained back, you know, uh, starting with SARS back in 2003. So able to build on it, but each, each vaccine is still going to be different. Each pathogen is going to be different. Dr. Wen, Alex Miller in Connecticut sent in this video. Let's take a look. Hi, my name is Alex. I'm 16 years old and I tested positive for COVID-19 two weeks ago. And since then, I have had small, painful bumps on my tongue. So I was wondering if you knew of any other cases with this symptom or any remedies for this symptom. Also, I haven't lost my sense of taste. Thank you. Dr. Wen? Well, as far as I know, there is no association that we know of between the bumps on the tongue and COVID-19, although Alex brings up a good point about the loss of smell and taste that even though COVID-19 is a respiratory virus, it is believed to cause these other types of symptoms. So I would say for Alex specifically about the bumps, if they are causing enough pain and discomfort that he's having trouble eating and drinking, he should call his doctor. And in the meantime, I hope that he recovers well. Doctor, uh, the, the CDC actually added new coronavirus symptoms to its list earlier this week. And I want to put them up on, on the screen just to go over them. It's fever, cough, shortness of breath, chills, repeated shaking with chills, muscle pain, headaches, sore throat, loss of taste or smell. Yeah, so what we knew before about the most typical symptoms for COVID-19 were the fever, the cough, and shortness of breath. And now it's important that CDC added six more symptoms because one of the criteria for testing for a lot of places is having these symptoms. So many of these new symptoms are what you would expect for a viral syndrome. The, the, sh uh, the chills, the shaking, the headache, et cetera, that's what you see for viral syndrome. The one that's different is the loss of smell and taste. And again, I think that illustrates that COVID-19 is not just affecting the lungs, it's affecting potentially the nervous system, other parts of the body mm -hmm. too, and we're learning a lot more as the disease goes on. Yeah. Uh, Sanjay, this next question came in via Twitter with our hashtag CNNTownHall. It's at the bottom of your screen there. It reads, as long as you follow social, uh, hashtag social distancing, is it okay to continue solo outdoor activities like jogging or running? Any other steps to make sure that we're safe as we work out? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I mean, that's the key is whether you're inside or you're outside, you want to maintain that, that physical distance. I mean, uh, that, that's, that's the key in terms of breaking the transmission. That's what we're trying to do here is break that transmission of spread and hopefully start to make the virus uh, uh, die down like, like, it, like other viruses have. Um, I could make a tutorial video on how to watch Netflix safely um, <laughs> or stream other movies because uh, that's about the only activity I've been doing. But uh, you've made a video, Sanjay, on the show is the best way of running safely outside. Let's take a look. Okay. Everybody wants to be outside. I want to be outside. People are going stir crazy inside and it's okay out here for certain. Uh, you also want to run and running's okay. The risk of getting the virus while you're running 
is really, really low, but it's not zero. So here's a couple of caveats to keep in mind. Same rules apply. You wanna maintain a physical distance when you're running, just like when you're inside. We hear six feet. According to Lindsay Marr at Virginia Tech, when you run, maybe you make that closer to 10 feet or 12 feet. Why? You're breathing harder. You may be putting more virus into the air. Avoid people as much as possible. Maybe you're gonna run at odd times, early morning or late at night. Maybe you're gonna run different routes just to sort of mix it up. And let's say you see someone in front of you a few feet. Lindsay says maybe you switch over to the other side of the road at this point because you do want to avoid someone's, as she calls it, breath cloud. Here's the thing about masks. If you're truly gonna be running by yourself, you probably don't need one. But if there's a chance that you might be sharing a path or a sidewalk with somebody else, then probably have a mask with you. At a minimum, it's a courtesy to let people know that you're taking this seriously and trying to protect them. And keep in mind, if you have any symptoms whatsoever, you should be staying home. So go ahead and do it. I do it. Dr. Fauci does it. It's good for your physical health. I think it's good for your mental health as well. So if you're running near, you know, on a path where there's other people nearby you, should you wear a mask? I, I think so, yeah. I, you know, I think um, if you're truly not gonna come in contact with, with other people or you know, is still able to maintain a, a safe distance, which uh, you heard maybe closer to 10 or 12 feet because you're breathing harder, um, then, then I think it's okay not to wear a mask. I carry one with me if people are gonna right. be around. I think it's a courtesy as well. I mean, people are frightened, Anderson, so I think it, you know, like I said, I think it shows that you're taking this seriously. Yeah. Dr. Wen, this next question came in via uh, Facebook with our hashtag CNN Town Hall. It's there at the bottom of the screen. Uh, the question is, should we change our clothes after returning home from being in public places like the grocery store? I mean, the chance of actually acquiring COVID-19 from, um, from your clothes that somebody else may have transmitted virus to, those chances are very low. But I would say that if you are a healthcare worker, if you are somebody who is around a lot of mm. virus potentially at work, then it makes sense to come home, change your clothes, leave your shoes outside. You can still do so out of an abundance of caution, but the chance of actually acquiring COVID-19 that way are very low. Sanjay, yep, you agree? Yeah, I, 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 and I tell you one thing I've been doing, I don't know if you've been doing this, Lena, at the hospital, I actually change my clothes there now. Uh, so I, you know, go and change into scrubs, then change back to try and reduce the, uh, the chance of bringing it home. Uh, Dr. Wen, Carly and Virginia sent in this video. Let's take a look. My son was born two weeks ago during a peak week of this crisis. And since then, we've been quarantining at home. I expect it will be many months before he's held by anyone outside of the family or before he goes to any public places. My question is this, does spending the first few months of life in an ultra sterile environment have any lasting impact on a child's immune system? Thank you. Dr. Wen. Well, Carly, I'm in the same boat as you. First of all, congratulations, but I also have a four-week-old and no one else has held a four-week-old other than my immediate family, and we're certainly not planning to go to any public places. Look, I wouldn't worry about lack of exposure for now because actually for newborns, they have such limited immunity anyway, and we wouldn't want to expose the baby to all kinds of other germs um, anyway. And this um, outbreak is going to be over at some point, and we will be able to see people again. And in the meantime, I would say you can also boost the baby's immunity by breastfeeding if you can, doing a lot of skin-to-skin -skin contact and just enjoying the baby. <laughs> All right, uh, Sanjay Eric in New York sent in this video. Let's take a look. Is it appropriate to compare the infection fatality rate of COVID-19 to the infection fatality rate of the seasonal flu 
when we have a flu vaccine. What would the infection fatality rate approximately be for the seasonal flu if we had no vaccine? It's a really, uh, it's a really good question and a good point. I mean, what we say is that the fatality rate for those who get infected with the seasonal flu is around 0.1%. Now, keep in mind, though, even keep keep aside the vaccine for a second, because we all have lived on this planet, we all have some immunity to this uh, seasonal flu because there's some variation of the flu. It changes a bit every year, but we do develop some immunity. And because a lot of people have been exposed, we start to develop some herd immunity to the seasonal flu as well. So those things help us. Then you layer on top of that the, the vaccine. So again, but the, the fatality rate to the, to the question, which is a good question, is 0.1% for those infected. So in this country, if 30 million people become infected with the seasonal flu, which is you know not that atypical, that means 30,000 people roughly would die of that. So that's that, I think that's the way to sort of think about it. All right, Sanjay, Dr. Lena Wen, uh, Dr. Wen, thank you so much as always. Sanjay, stay with us. Up next, Bill Gates shares his thoughts on testing, vaccines, and how we successfully reopen the country. And we've got a nice announcement to make ahead also. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome again to the CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. Johns Hopkins uh, University reports there are now more than one million cases in the U.S. Almost 63,000 dead, and all of that as federal guidelines on social distancing expire tonight. And at least 31 states will have started to reopen by this weekend. Uh, back here with us once again to talk about uh, this, as well as testing, treatments, and more. Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Bill, thanks so much for, for being back with us. It's been a, a little over a month since you were here, and at that time, you said the U.S. had not hit its peak. So at this point, do you think we have peaked, and where do you think we are right now in kind of the arc of the pandemic? Well, we certainly hit our first peak, and if we stayed uh, with the social isolation policies, then most places of the country, you'd continue to see a decline. Uh, because uh, people are gonna go back to more association in some places in the country, it's very likely that there'll be a uh, future peaks as well. And when you say future peaks, that's uh, different peaks in different places, and, and that's more deaths. I mean, that's more deaths than would have been otherwise. That's right. Uh, there will be deaths uh, in the summer and in the fall. Uh, there's still some unknowns about the seasonality. Will we l be lulled into complacency in the summer only mm -hmm. to be pushed back up uh, in the fall? And there's a lag time as, as people open up policies, you know, for the first month, not everybody will be taking advantage of those. So you can think, hey, these policies are good. Let's, you know, go looser. And yet the people's behavior is just starting to take advantage of those. And so very quickly you can get yourself back into exponential growth. Uh, it, well, you know, it, that's a point that I think has really struck me this past week, Bill. I've been talking to a lot of people and there does seem to be this cognitive dissonance. You know, on, on one hand, people are, are acting like, you know, we're close to the end of this and, you know, really, you know, uh, taking victory laps in places. And then we hear, for example, Dr. Frieden wrote today that this is sort of still just very much the beginning, the worst health threat in a hundred years and reminding us that the, the Spanish flu took two years, really. I mean, I don't want to unnecessarily frighten people, but do you sense the same thing? Is there a cognitive dissonance right now? Well, it's hard to deliver bad news. And 
particularly when we can't say it with 100% certainty. You know, maybe the summer is helping out here. And, but, you know, we saw Singapore, who was very tight. They opened up, they got a problem. Uh, they've had to close back down. Japan uh, thought they could use certain policies, then uh, had to declare an emergency. And Asia, it's important to say their testing and their contact tracing are of a quality far above the United States. The United States does not prioritize who gets tested. And the United States does not make sure you get answers within 24 hours. You know, we haven't authorized kiosks or home testing. That's still uh, a regulatory uh, uh, thing that's tied up. So our testing numbers should never be compared. If you're a high-income person, you can get tested a lot of times. If you're low-income, you're not likely to get tested at all. So our system fails to have the prioritization that would give us an accurate picture of what's going on. Do you think there should be home testing that people can, can just do on their families? Well, we have to make sure that we're applying the testing where it's necessary. But yes, uh, you should be able to get a test at home if you're symptomatic. Then very quickly, all of your contacts, which would include your household, they should be tested. And that's you know, a perfect example where you need that answer very quickly so people know who should isolate instead of uh, going out and, and being at work. And this becomes even more important as we're doing these opening up policies. So the, the speed of testing, South Korea happened to use kiosks, that worked well for them. Uh, in the US, we could use kiosks, we could use pharmacies, but we have to have prioritization and quick turnaround. Anytime you get an answer, say three days later, don't count that. Take that out of the numbers. These charts people show, uh, right. you know, you've got all those bogus tests and the inequity all built into that funny number. Well, one thing, I don't know if you saw, uh, Bill, Paul Romer's comments. He's a Nobel Prize uh, winning economist. He, and this is going to sound far-fetched to people, but, but he suggests that the entire country essentially be tested every two weeks. And he says it is, it is quite possible that if you go to places like the Broad Institute and a lot of university laboratories and the commercial laboratories that actually were, were, were able to do this, um, it costs about $100 billion a year, he said, but that would be the key to actually getting things open until we have a vaccine or something. When, when you hear those sorts of proposals, what do you think? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I just wrote a piece in the foundation called Mega Testing. And the question was, can we get from this bogusly measured 200,000 a day up to what you just implied, which is over 20 million a day? You know, that is a factor of 100 greater. Yep. And to an economist, okay, that must sound simple. Uh, but where was his system for collecting those swabs? You know, which swabs was he using? We haven't gotten the polyester swab approved by FDA yet, which would give you a lot of volume. Uh, you know, BART is working with us on that, but, but it's, it's got to get approved. But even to get the 200,000 to be real and to get it up to something like the 500,000, the you know, the lack of CDC engagement on the website with priorities means that that's really in bad shape. The contact tracing, you, you have to be able to quickly get a test out to that contact. That's what the Asian countries who've done well have shown us. So they, yes, there are approaches that may or may not work to get way above the 200,000 a day. They don't exist yet. Uh, there's things where you use 
agricultural PCR machines. There's things where you use CRISPR, and we should invest in those. But we can't count on uh, getting to that, you know, mind-blowing number, so-called mega testing. Uh, we should pursue it, but no strategy should be based on it because the chance of it working mm. actually isn't super high. So let me just double back to what you said, the, the, the 200,000 testing a day, is, which we hear from a lot of podiums from a lot of people. You say that's a bogus number. Can you just explain why that's a bogus number? If you get your test result within 24 hours so you can act on it, then let's count that. If you're making sure that low-income people have equal access and it's not just you know, the delivery person who's asymptomatic getting tested every day, uh, you know, because they go into wealthy neighborhoods. The cues for that testing process, those are not prioritized. And so, you know, if you have a, a relationship with a doctor who has a connection with the lab, you'll get to the front of the line. And other countries actually had criteria for taking this very scarce resource that's about saving lives, that's about seeing if we're doing the right thing and allocating that in a just way. So, so but, uh, sorry, but just part of my ignorance on this, but so you're saying the toss the, the tests that take three to four days to get results, toss those out because in that three to four days, that person is going to interact with an untold number of people? But yeah, what's the point of the test? That's <laughs> the, your period of greatest infectiousness. There's a little bit before you're symptomatic, which that's very uh, difficult. Uh, but, you know, once you get symptomatic and you get that test, that's your key remaining days of infectiousness are about three or four days there. And so if you get the test three days later, and what, what's the point? Do you just write apology notes to the people you ran into for the last mm. three days? You should write apology notes, but the, the, uh, I have a, a question about a, a op-ed that Michael Olsterholm wrote about. I don't know if you saw it, Bill, but basically, you know, we think of these tests as binary. Uh, if you can get one and you get the results, it tells you that you have the virus or you don't. But I was looking up some of these false negative rates, uh, Bill, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, but even with these, if you get a good test, even some of these false negative rates are as high as 15%, some even a little bit higher than that. That's that's pretty significant. I mean, is that is that an issue that can be addressed, do you think? It, it, I imagine it would have to be brought down in order for all these other things that you're talking about to work. Well, definitely as we look at non-PCR formats, uh, that's going to be a huge problem. They, uh, the PCR test, if it's done properly, that corrected, uh, collected, which you know we've shown the self-swab does pretty well at that, uh, if it if you get it to the machine in a reasonable time frame, uh, it, it should be quite accurate. Now, we need to keep calibrating. It was great. Finally, somebody pointed out that the serology tests were particularly bad right. uh, with them, uh, lots and lots of false positives. So we need to keep calibrating these tests. Most of the PCR tests should catch a lot of the cases. And so I wouldn't expect to see a 15% false negative rate. But you also have that period where you're pre-symptomatic. And what we're seeing now is that your viral load, I was hoping the viral load would be low in the pre-symptomatic phase. And the, the studies uh, that have been done as we go into homeless shelters, nursing facilities, uh, what we're seeing is that there are a number of individuals with a very high viral load. That's, uh, and that probably determines your infectiousness that are pre-symptomatic. And some who are never symptomatic, but that's are less than, than pre-symptomatic. 
And I, I know your foundation's invested in, in research around testing, specifically on the self-swab testing. Um, can, can you just explain to me, I, I, I can't wrap my mind around why these swabs are so hard to get to where they need to go. I, and I, I know I've been told that they're really, they're not like Q-tips that you buy in a store, that they're actually, you know, sort of hard to make, I guess. But I mean, it's a swab. It, it is, what am I missing? Well, we have data in front of the FDA that uh, we're, we're hoping they'll uh, act on to show that basically all the swabs work quite well. And all the ways of transporting the swab back uh, to the machine work quite well. But when the original approval was done, it was done assuming that there was very modest volume. So this thing where you need a healthcare worker and this thing that they jam it to the back of your throat, you know, that was okay because it was a low volume thing. And it wasn't something infectious that when you jam it in, you probably infect that healthcare worker unless they're changing their personal protection equipment every time. So nobody had really thought, okay, what about the self-swab? Uh, and, you know, in, in the state of Washington, that's being used to great effect for our assessment uh, network. But the, so the FDA registration is with a very particular swab. Now we're in this dire situation where the good news is, is that most of the, most swabs work, including swabs like polyester dry, which are available in big quantities and, uh, you know, BART is getting engaged on that. So the swab thing, it's weird that it's, taking so long, but that is not a fundamental limit that should hold mm. us back. In fact, we should be able to have those swabs pre-positioned uh, so that it, when you feel symptomatic, you either have it or you just go to the pharmacy, get it, uh, you know, and immediately, uh, if you're prioritized by the website, you you give it in and then you you get a result back very quickly. I, I've, you know, I had the test done with the the, old, the nasopharyngeal where they really put that swab far, far back. And one of the things they kept telling me was, you know, this has to be done properly because, again, you could increase your false negative rates if you don't do the testing properly. Is Even if you get the swabs, is that a concern, do you think, or have you seen with the self-swabbing that people just don't get a good enough sample? No, we, the, the data is there. This was filed, oh, you know, like over three weeks ago. Uh, the data is there comparing where you would take a patient and you would do it both ways and show uh, that you know it, it works extremely well. The speed of contact tracing, if you want to try and open up, this contact tracing thing has got to be taken seriously. South Korea took it seriously. It looks like there's an effort in New York uh, that Mayor Bloomberg's driving, uh, helping out with that will do some of that. Uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of strange that there's not you know, clear federal guidance that that's a necessary part of reopening is to have the quick turnaround tests, tests that actually low-income people can get access to, but the contact tracing to follow up so those people hear very quickly if they've been infected. You really, I mean, you do start, and you've, you've rightly mentioned this a lot, I mean, you, you really see the inequities that previously exist in a society at a time like this, the inequities in terms of access to health care, um, access to, you know, that you just see the imbalances that are the inequalities that are in, in a society. Yeah, no, you know, low-income student probably is not getting uh, online instruction uh, as much as the uh, suburban kid 
you know, the household that you're confined to is probably very different. So yes, uh, like most bad things, uh, the poor countries uh, will probably have it the worst and the, the poor uh, lower income people in the United States will have it worse. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you saw some of the reporting that came out of uh, China from David Culver, our, our uh, China correspondent, but he was talking about this app that he essentially now has as he's going through China. It sort of lets him into certain places based on places that he's been uh, and what's happening with particular clusters of infections. It's quite sophisticated. I, I'm curious, you talk a lot about contact tracing because that's an important step, obviously. What, what do you think the role of, of technology is? We think about sort of, I mean, contact tracing has been around since the 18th century. What should it look like now in terms of technology, do you think? Well, fundamentally, when somebody tests positive, uh, and which, again, very quickly after they get that result, then you interview them. Right. Uh, and, of course, their household is, is going to be the first step there. And under current social activity, there won't be a gigantic number. There'll be a few places they've been, a few people they've been with, uh, and some variants there. But those people will be prioritized to get a quick turnaround test. And that's how you quench this exponential growth. The, if you have really good testing, uh, prioritize, quick turnaround, uh, then your opening up can be far more liberal than if you don't have this thing. Now, most of the Asian countries stayed pretty closed down and they had this contact tracing. In terms of, of technology, yeah. I don't think we'll force download the locations you've been in, like some countries did, I don't think that's necessary. You might use it as a reminder that you picked voluntarily to run an app that you can look back at the last 14 days, uh, and it'll help you with that dialogue or automate some of that dialogue. Uh, but I, I think the way Germany's doing it, uh, you know, or Austria or Denmark, uh, there's a lot of really good examples that are probably more in line with our privacy sensitivities. Do you, you know, I've asked a lot of different state, local officials about contact tracing. None of them really will say, oh, you know, yeah, I feel, or the public health people in various states, none of them will say, yes, I feel great about where we're at. Yes, we have enough people. They'll all sort of try, to, many of them will try to be kind of optimistic and sort of talk about, well, we're really going to, you know, start to think about that or ramp up. Do you, is there a number of how many people mm. need to be employed doing contact tracing? I mean, you know, Sanjay and I have been, talking about this for, for ages, we've heard everything from, you know, 300,000 to, you know, over a million. What do you, do you have a number? If you wait longer until the disease numbers have dropped down, then your number of active cases is much lower. And that's the equation that should be run is, okay, how many contact tracing people do I have? How many can they each do per day? Uh, what's the average number of contacts? And where am I? on these uh, positive tests, once I really let every symptomatic have, have that access and I have enough capacity for the contacts, it's not a, a complicated equation. New York and Washington State, the two I know the best, are moving to do a, a system a lot like Germany. And you can just look at the productivity there and the number of people per case there. Uh, it, it's, it's not that hard. It's not like we don't have people you know, like everybody in America is tied up uh, doing important work. You can train somebody <laughs> yeah. to do this work fairly yeah. quickly. You know, remember, we're spending trillions uh, for the economic relief here. So the idea 
that we actually get serious about the health-related thing like the testing, you know, it seems pretty obvious that there should be clear federal guidelines. Do you, we're gonna, I know we're gonna talk about vaccines, something that you're obviously very focused on, but if we get to this point that we're talking about, Bill, with testing and, and having enough contact tracing, which you say, you know, we should be able to get to, to these things, can we get to some sense of normalcy then? I mean, what, what, what does normalcy look like at that point? With great testing and contact tracing, quick turnaround, prioritize, you can open up far more than you were in the first phase. And, you know, ideally, uh, you would wait until you're really ready to do that well. Uh, and then you would be very careful about the activities that properly modified pose the least risk of infection and the greatest benefit to society. And so things like manufacturing, construction that are physical activities. Uh, school's one that's hard to get the design right, but there's so much benefit, I hope we can do that well. A lot of office jobs you know, should stay the way they are because the productivity loss, although it's not zero, it's not gigantic. And so we shouldn't use up the contact uh, uh, budget we have on things that the benefit isn't, you know, very, very high. So like big public events, not until the miracle th therapeutic or the widespread right. uh, immunity from the vaccine has gotten us into a third phase, uh, which is the only one that you would call normal. Can I just ask a follow-up question about schools uh, for a second, K through 12 and then, and then also colleges? Um, what we hear, as many people have heard, is that uh, while younger people can certainly get infected and even get very sick, it is less likely for that to happen in someone who is younger. And I also know that you, um, you know, you've uh, funded things like the Khan Academy, which is uh, more online education. I mean, what do you think about the idea of a more robust online education for a while or maybe even, uh, you know, past the pandemic uh, for uh, college or maybe even some, some of the grade school students? As you get um, into younger ages, the effectiveness of online gets worse and worse. And as you get into kids that don't have the equipment, the internet connection, the place that's quiet where they can do that work, it gets worse and worse. And so if you take an extreme case, a highly motivated college student where the college has worked on that online material for a long time and you know there's no lab work involved, mm. yes, that can be really top notch. In fact, there's a lot of institutions uh, who offer that and the quality of education is very good. If you get down to a you know kidney gardener in the inner city, I don't think that online experience uh, measures up to the socialization and exposure and the ability of their parents to go off and, and do their job that, that physical kindergarten provides. You know, you talked about federal guidelines and, the, and you know, overall the need for uh, a strong federal presence leading the way in something like this, though clearly in the United States, obviously it's up to governors and, and a state by state and, and their difference with localities. Just looking overseas in terms of what in, in all pandemics that you've worked on, in all disease prevented stuff that you've worked on, what is the model that, that works in terms of, you know, is it the strong federal, uh, you know, a strong central leadership taking sort of ownership of it? Is that the best or what, do, what have you seen that works? Well, historically, 
the U.S. CDC has been very strong. And whenever there'd be a problem, not even in the U.S., you know, their advice, uh, you know, would be brought to bear. And they'd have very clear advice on things like testing prioritization. Uh, you know, so that they that is a deep set of skills where they're, you know, getting input uh, from all the states. But the you know, in the entire world, that's the best group of people. Uh, there's an opportunity here for them to help with testing prioritization. And I, you know, I hope they'll seize it. I, I know that um, with regard to China, sort of lo looking at other countries, you, you don't want to look too much in the rearview mirror in terms of what went right or what went wrong there. But are there are there some lessons learned? Because we're still in this, Bill. You know, I mean, we can learn lessons even right now. Are there some lessons as to how this information uh, flowed from China to the United States? What should we take away from that? Well, many countries were listened to what was being said in January and took action. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sure every country wishes that they had listened more to that. Uh, what you ended up with in the places where you're seeing massive deaths is you had community spread, and in February, you didn't jump on it. You weren't testing in the community. You didn't have all the PCR machines activated to do those tests. So, uh, you know, play, some places... Uh, listened to what was being said in January and did those things, and some some did not. There's also a lot of things we could have done in terms of innovation way before the epidemic showed up. And, you know, we'll also, when we finally go back through this thing, say, you know, why the modest number of billions that would have given us quick diagnostics, quick antivirals and antibodies, right. and quick vaccines, why didn't we make those investments? But now, you know, we have to, you know, we have, we've suffered this uh, in the U.S. in particular, this unbelievable tragedy, and we don't get to go back and fix, uh, you know, January and February, but we just need, you know, to take now this desire to open up and say, okay, how do you build the testing system that will minimize the deaths uh, that can come out of more liberal policies? In terms of therapies and vaccines, I mean, just the last couple of days had some good news when it comes to uh, to, to treatment of, of the virus with uh, remdesivir, with some promise in trials. You said you suspect that a treatment would need to be about 95 percent effective in order for things to go back to normal. How achievable is that, do you think? What, you know, what do you see when you think about vaccines and treatments? Well, the ther therapeutics... Uh, you know, many of them look like they're a dead end, and the ones that look promising are pretty modest effects. I mean, I don't think you're going to say, hey, you know, remdesivir was 11 days versus 15 days for severe patients. Let's go to the movies. But every little bit helps, and you'll have combination therapies, and you'll figure out uh, different ways of applying those things. So I think every month, the therapy story uh, they'll have some good news. There's a lot of trials out in various countries. The list of things being tried is very long. Uh, the one I'd have to say I'm the most optimistic about is taking antibodies and manufacturing those, you know, finding the best antibody that a human immune system has made, its affinity to the spike protein, and getting that out in large numbers. That has a chance of being very dramatic, like over 80% of patients are uh, avoid the disease. Uh, and, you know, that is moving full speed ahead. Our 
Therapeutics Accelerator just reserved a pretty gigantic antibody factory to make sure we can pick the very best of all the antibodies and get it into that factory uh, and make it available to those who need it uh, very, very quickly. Hmm. Bill, uh, just stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. We want to continue the conversation about the latest uh, reporting and hope of a vaccine. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. This is CNN's Global Town Hall. We've been speaking with Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We have some more questions, and Bill's been kind enough to stick around for a bit longer. So you wrote in your paper that that, uh, short of a miracle treatment, which we can't count on, the only way to return the world to where it was before COVID-19 show up is a highly effective vaccine that prevents the disease. You then point out the typical development timeline for vaccine is five years. You know, we were talking to Dr. Fauci uh, earlier. He was saying, you know, he's he can't guarantee it, but he's hopeful of of a vaccine perhaps as early as January. Is that realistic, you think? Well, when when people keep saying, hey, you know, are you really betting against something really wonderful happening? You know, won't you let us think maybe it could happen sooner or sooner? Uh, You know, nobody wants to spoil the party. But and, and there's great progress on the vaccines. I have to say the fact that Oxford Uh, their monkey data, they're talking to AstraZeneca, you know, Moderna's made progress, Uh, BioNTech's working with Pfizer. These companies are moving at full speed. They've totally prioritized this. You know, our vaccine team is working with them to say, okay, what can we do to help you? Uh, Making sure that the funders understand how to rank these various activities in terms of what's most promising to be cheap and scale. But until you have a phase three plan, that has the safety and efficacy plan approved by a regulator who's gonna give the indemnification that yes, we wanna put this out into all these healthy people. Until then, you're just kind of speculating and nobody's near to writing that phase three plan and taking it to a gold standard regulator. So uh, the best case now is you know somewhere early next year. You always have to be careful, is it the first unit to be manufactured or is that 100 million, 300 million? seven billion, you know, so which, what volume are you talking about? Uh, But some phase threes are gonna start faster than I expected. Uh, The RNA approach, which we've been backing for over a decade, there's, you know, three of those that are all progressing. Thank goodness we also have some non-RNA approaches because we we have never had an approved RNA vaccine. So uh, things like the Novavax, the Johnson & Johnson, Sanofi, JSK, those also, you know, are very promising. So yes, it's exciting, but the idea of being pressed to give a date, uh, you know, I, I try and say the same thing Dr. Fauci is, because he and I are looking at the same data and uh, we, we want to let people know it's quite a range of possibilities. Dr. Fauci is always being pinned down on these things because, like you said, that people want to hear some some optimistic news. It's interesting as well with that Oxford study, as you know, Bill, um, they they are planning on having 6,000 people enrolled by the end of May, which is which is uh, some sort of land speed record. They tested this. You may know this, Anderson, but they had a bunch of monkeys. They exposed a bunch of monkeys to the virus and all the monkeys got infected. Then they vaccinated six monkeys and none of those monkeys became infected. So really small 
but, but promising. Although they say, as you know, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. That's a saying in medicine. But do, do you think that there might be several different types of vaccines then that could come out? Uh, I mean, we think about the, the, the different types that are being tested, but might we have several different that are offered at some point? Well, we need to back enough that uh, the chance of success is very high. Most vaccines don't succeed. Uh, you know, the HIV vaccine is the most famous. You know, our foundation and the U.S. government are the two big funders there. And, uh, you know, the, it, it will happen, but uh, it's, it's taken a long, long time and uh, still tough. HIV is Four a years. much, much tougher target than coronavirus is. Coronavirus is a bit of an unknown target. And in the next few months, we'll, we'll understand the natural immune response so much better because we're doing the blood plasma hyperimmunoglobulin work, and that is informing the antibody work, and that's informing the vaccine work. So in, in the next 60 days, uh, we will know a lot more about immune response, including a, a weird phenomena where vaccines sometimes can cause a problem. Right. We'll start to get a sense of that antibody-dependent enhancement uh, if that's a problem for some of these constructs. So the fact we have a lot uh, and we'll pick the best one of those and build factories in parallel, I, I'd say that's going very well. And the regulator in the UK case, the MHRA, uh, allowed Oxford to go ahead faster than I expected they would. So, uh, you know, that is is going to help with the schedule. You talked about the, the immune response. Do you do we know or do we know when we'll know about immunity or do I mean if antibodies equal immunity? Yeah, in a few months, uh, this idea of, OK, the asymptomatics, what's the range there? The uh, mild disease, what's the range there? You know, how does that correlate with age or other conditions in the work we're doing where we're getting recovered patients to donate blood? Now we're going to go find some asymptomatics, also get them uh, to donate blood. Uh, and we're looking to concentrate it down uh, to this hyperimmune globulin. As part of that, that industry does a really good job of quantitative antibody measurement. There's some other people who are doing the T cell side measurement, but yes, uh, that is one of the, the unknowns that will finally uh, be known in a few months. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think what you're saying is that not all antibodies are, are are the same. You could find some particularly good antibodies, stick them in a test tube with the virus and see if they neutralize the virus in, in effect. Right before the break, I think you were talking about the idea, I think you were sort of referencing monoclonal antibodies, finding some of these super antibodies and then essentially cloning them and turning them into a medicine. Is that right? Yeah. When I I, as, sorry, the word antibodies comes up in multiple contexts, but when I was talking about manufacturing, yes, that's monoclonal antibodies, and that's the factory uh, that the Foundation Therapeutic Accelerator Group uh, reserved a massive capacity. You, you just mentioned the company Moderna, and you mentioned them the last time we spoke, their development of a vaccine with your foundation helping fund. Can you just give a status update on that since they've now begun human trials and received, I think, $483 million in federal funding? Yeah, BARDA uh, backed them as they have several others. Uh, you know, they went into humans in March. Uh, you really would like to wait the three months to see what the immune response is. They did, they, you, you're doing dose ranging. And one of the challenges from Moderna is scale. If the dose is 250 micrograms, 
then their factory can make a tenth as much as if the mm. dose is 25 micrograms. Mm. So in the phase one, they're doing some dose ranging work and then they'll see how that connects to the antibody response. And so if their lower dose, even in elderly people, shows a very strong response, that would be very good news. If the lower dose you know, kind of has no effect and you have to go all the way up to that sure. 250, then you know, uh, either you're gonna have to build a miracle factory or you're gonna have to have many of these vaccine constructs because getting that up to a, a, even a billion would, be, would take way too long. But, but overall, when you compare these, these RNA or DNA vaccines, um, are, are they overall, though, easier to manufacture than the traditional vaccine? Typically, people think about a little bit of the virus used to make a vaccine or a little bit of an inactivated virus to make a vaccine. Are these DNA or RNA vaccines going to be easier to manufacture despite the dosage? Eventually, yes, but because they're not mature, the issue of not only making the RNA, but how you make the lipid that they're inside. You know, you caught the RNA vaccine field. Uh, it didn't get the massive funding that uh, if, if we wanted to be ready for pandemic, that it probably would have. And so uh, we've never gone through this. You know, five, five years from now, we would have been further, further along. So uh, even though conceptually their manufacturing job is easier because the, there's first things here about the lipid and the, the dosing, uh, their manufacturing challenge is also very large. There's almost none of these constructs uh, that don't have some problem. Uh, but, you know, hey, we're here to solve problems. This is the most important tool, the most urgent tool mankind has to invent. Yeah, I mean, that's why we're spending so much time talking about vaccines. But once we get to that point, there's 7 billion roughly people on the planet. Um, so how, do, how should these big decisions get made, such as who, who should get the vaccine first, when max vac uh, vaccinations could begin, uh, you know, paying for it all? And obviously, as you know, I know we've talked about this, Bill, there is an there's still anti-vaccine sentiment out there as well, which is hard to believe considering what we're going through. But what about these big questions in terms of who and, and paying for it and when? Well, if the vaccine is reasonably effective, then you won't have to get 100% coverage. This term herd immunity, which is overused because it only matters when you have high percentage, like over half the population uh, can't be part of the transmission chain. If you vaccinate you know, 80% of the population and the vaccine is highly effective, say you know, 90% effective, then you can't get exponential spread. Right. Uh, you know, and so then you're in the wonderful situation that you can think of the world like you did uh, before coronavirus uh, came along. The, the forum where that was created after World War II to discuss global health issues is the WHO. And that's, you know, all the countries belong to that. And they sit and they discuss and they come up with policies that have to do with quarantine and health checks and things of that nature. So they'll be involved. And there's a group of funders that are thinking, okay, how do we fund this? Uh, for even the poor countries, the developing world, they're coming together and talking with WHO. Uh, you know, Gavi will help, which buys vaccines for poor countries will help. The U.S. hasn't shown up in those in that dialogue yet, but I'm very optimistic, given the history of the U.S. involvement in global health, like malaria and HIV, that the Congress will choose to have us show up and contribute and help coordinate and make sure this is run the right way, because the U.S. has deep skills when 
they're they're activated. So, so are you suggesting that that poor countries or countries with uh, you know more disenfranchised healthcare systems should be earlier on the list? If if you know we're going to roll out vaccines ultimately enough for who needs it or who should get it, but who, should those countries be earlier? It's going to be very tough because you're going to have the countries that finance the work. You're going to have the countries where the trial was done. You're going to have the countries where there's the highest infectious rate because social isolation doesn't work there. And in those, under those WHO auspices, uh, you know, lots of discussions will take place. Uh, you know, and hopefully the U.S. is there at the table helping uh, those decisions be made in a smart way. It, it's all modulo how constrained the manufacturing is. If you can make, you know, 500 million doses in a month. Uh, you know, then very you're going to be limited uh, by fill finish, which we're working on that, the final stage of the manufacturing, uh, and just getting the distribution networks out there. If you can only make, say, uh, 50 million a month of all the successful vaccines, then you're going to have one of the toughest prioritization problems ever. Right. And, you know, that's up to regulators and governments. Uh, and, uh, you know, the U.S. can be part of that discussion. You talked. You mentioned herd immunity. I'm just wondering when you look at what's uh, the the path that Sweden has taken, uh, and then you look at you know the the their caseload, their death toll compared to Denmark, Norway, other countries in that region. I, I'm wondering what you make of the way they're going about it. Are there lessons in there? Is it is it you know as black and white as it appears? Or I mean, it seems like if their healthcare system is able to keep up with the caseload. Are they just experiencing things in a shorted, shorter, truncated time that we are we are going to ultimately experience? Different countries got different levels of exposure at different times. And so, you know, Germany, for example, has done things well, but they did have the benefit that they saw Italy being overwhelmed and their exposure came after Italy. So they were able to respond. But now the exposure in Sweden and Germany were about at the same time. If you look uh, at the IHME, uh, which is a group that we uh, fund, if you look at their forecast, you, well, you had Chris Murray on yeah. earlier, uh, you look at the death rate uh, in Sweden versus Germany that they forecast, it's way higher up in Sweden. And so, you know, somebody can decide, a politician, if, if that's what really happens, was it worth it? Um, you know, that's what this is all about, is if you open activity X, uh, you know, are you willing to accept a somewhat higher uh, health burden because of that? Sweden, uh, you know, they made their decision. They seem happy with their decision, but they are forecast to have substantially higher death rate than uh, uh, most other countries. Mm. One, one of the things in your paper that I, that I thought was really particularly interesting were all the things that we need to learn about the virus, like if it is weather dependent, how many people never get symptoms but are contagious, what symptoms mean, you, you should get tested. I mean, there's so much we still don't know about this. Yeah, there are many countries uh, where the epidemic is not nearly as intense uh, as we would expect. And so is it just a delayed effect? Is there something about the vaccines they get in their youth? You know, people think this BCG vaccine might, you know, be a helpful thing. We don't know. And so we have to assume it's going to be as bad in all those countries. Uh, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere, 
you have Brazil, Australia, South Africa have cases. So they're not completely immune, even though the force of infection may be less. When you you famously talked about preparing for a pandemic, anticipating one several years ago. I think you gave a TED talk about this. You and I have talked about your concerns about pandemic flu in particular, but you could talk about this in the same way. I'm curious if if we did everything we could to to prepare for a pandemic. If if as a country or as a world we did everything that we could, could we could we be prepared? I mean, is is there a price tag on that? Is it possible, or is this more a a sort of like a weather event that we you know can predict but can't completely mitigate against? Well, we've seen even without that preparation. If you use January and February properly and did community testing, it you didn't have to go through this, you know, horrific economic cost. Yes, we for tens of billions a year, and I was very specific in the New England Journal of Medicine article, these tools can be well developed enough that a, a an epidemic like this one could have been stopped at very small numbers. Uh, you know, the Chinese were able to stop it at, at fairly small numbers, even though they were country number one. Now they used very stringent measures. But for something that's not even 5% of the defense budget, below that, you can have pandemic preparedness, innovation, stockpiles, simulation, that at least for this threat would have been overwhelmingly successful. At the end of your paper, you compared the pandemic to World War II as a generational defining mm. moment. No one who lives through it will ever forget it. I'm wondering, what do you think will be most remembered about this pandemic? And, and how do you think it may change, you know, I mean, if, if everybody is generationally affected by it, I mean, how do you think it may change things, society? Well, there's huge negatives. You know, World War II was... Uh, incredibly bad, and yet out of it came institutions where we haven't had a war of that type ever since then. And so there was this constructive response uh, that, you know, I think humanity should be very proud of of that record. Here, I think uh, if nations are willing to come together uh, and say, okay, you know, this was a problem for all of us, uh, what what mutually should we be doing uh, this time forward? There's a blueprint that I and others wrote down about uh, the types of things that should be done. That will take place. How much we will have changed you know, our behavior. You know, It accelerates digitization. Uh, you know, Now when you look at TV shows and people shake hands, you're like, whoa, they're shaking hands. Uh, I guess this movie was made, you know, not this year. Uh, and you know, so we are getting used to different norms. We'll, you know, business trips and going to conventions, uh, you know, will that be uh, reduced by a significant amount once we get out of this? And it's the younger generation and the way they react to this that will really shape why it's a defining event. Uh, Bill Gates, as always, thank you so much. It's really just fascinating to talk to you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Up next, a very special personal moment of hope, which is an announcement and a welcome. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned.
It's been a difficult time in all of our lives, and there are certainly many hard days ahead. It is, I think, especially important in these times of trouble to try to hold on to moments of joy and moments of happiness. Even as we mourn the loss of loved ones, we're also blessed with new life and new love. So I just wanted to take a moment and share with you some joyful news of my own. On Monday, I became a father. Never actually said that before out loud, and it still kind of astonishes me. I am a dad, I have a son, and I want you to meet him. This is Wyatt Cooper. He is three days old. He's named after my dad, who died when I was 10 years old. I hope I can be as good a dad as he was. My son's middle name is Morgan, which is a family name on my mom's side. I know my mom and dad liked the name Morgan because while I was going through her things recently, I found a list they'd made 52 years ago when they were trying to think of names for me. Morgan was on the list. So that's Wyatt Morgan Cooper, my son. He was, <laughs> he was 7.2 pounds at birth, and he is sweet and soft and healthy, and I am beyond happy. As a gay kid, I never thought it would be possible to have a child, and I'm so grateful for all those who paved the way and for the doctors and nurses and everyone involved in my son's birth. Most of all, I am eternally grateful to a remarkable surrogate who carried Wyatt, watched over him lovingly, tenderly, and gave birth to him. It's an extraordinary blessing which she and all surrogates give to families who can't have children. My surrogate has a beautiful family of her own, an amazingly supportive husband. I'm also so thankful for all the support that they have given Wyatt and me. And she has kids of her own, and I appreciate their support as well. My family is blessed to have this family in our lives. I do wish my mom and my dad and my brother Carter were alive to meet Wyatt, but I like to believe that they can see him. I imagine them all together, arms around each other, smiling and laughing and watching, looking down on us. Happy to know that their love is alive in me and in Wyatt and that our family continues. New life and new love. Back with me is Sanjay. <laughs> Anderson. I told Sanjay a couple days ago, so. I, I, I've, yeah, I've been bursting at the seams. I, I can't believe I kept this secret. I, <laughs> I told you, I, to, I, you know, I called Anderson right, right away and just, I'm, I'm so, so happy for you. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm thrilled for you. And I don't know how you just got through what you just read. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, I was looking for the Kleenex here, uh -huh. but, but I'm really happy for you. And you know, Anderson, as well, I like to, I like to give gifts. You know, you got, uh -huh. you got the mask from Soleil. So uh -huh. I actually went out and bought something for, for Wyatt. Oh, here yeah? it is. Yep. Look at that. <laughs> so not that he's not going to watch TV and know what his dad does for a uh -huh. living, but this is a very nice, soft, uh, you know, CNN cool. satellite nice. truck. I don't even know if they have satellite trucks anymore, but this is it. They I'm do have this. satellite trucks. <laughs> yeah, so like, so that's, that's that. I'm going to send that to Wyatt. That'll be from oh, Uncle, Uncle Sanjay. Awesome. Make sure to tell him it's from Uncle Sanjay. I will. Um, I'll wipe it down before I send it. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'm probably going to be calling you up for some uh, parenting advice and how to deal with. I've done the diapers, and, and it's, uh, it's an interesting process. <laughs> what I expected. Yeah. Right. You're going to uh, be a great yeah. dad, Anderson. I, I'm, I'm just so, you're going to be an amazing dad. I'm, well, I'm just so I happy so. for you. Um, I, uh, I got a lot of good people in my life, so I hope so. Uh, Sanjay, thanks. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to our town hall. In case you haven't heard, Anderson Cooper is a father. <laughs> uh, congratulations again. Thanks. A, Thanks. a lot of you at home have been uh, writing us and asking about how you can help. Uh, you can find out by going to CNN.com slash coronavirus. Get a lot of information there. There's also different categories to search through on that page and places to reach out to get help for yourself or for a loved one. You can also go to CNN.com slash impact. Sounds great. Thanks very much, as always. Thanks to Bill Gates and Dr. Anthony Fauci, everyone else who joined us tonight. I also want to thank all those who wrote questions. If you didn't get your question answered tonight, the conversation continues at CNN.com slash coronavirus answers. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.